Jesus, the, the, the theology in that, what we just thought about, he loved me ere I knew him. Before we even made that he loved us and he had a plan, and it's just incredible to realize. So thank you, Ashley and Praise Team, for giving us that powerful reminder and song as we approach and begin this Easter season that our victory is in Christ and in Christ alone and nothing else. So we continue through the Easter story in the Gospel of John. Our timing couldn't be any better. So find on your Bible or Bible app, John chapter 19. We are one week away from Resurrection Sunday, from Easter Sunday. And in recent months, we've been seeing a lot of what's been happening in the final week of Christ's earthly life before he's crucified and before he rises again. In the last two weeks in particular, we've seen the betrayal of Jesus. We've seen his arrest. We've seen his pre-trial before Annas. And then last week we saw his Roman trial. And we saw in the midst of his Roman trial that he is showing us that he is the true king. And we saw last week the reality that people then and now are blind to it. We saw that he is the true king. And with the trial over, we come now to the cross. This morning's text from John 19 is what we would typically celebrate on Good Friday, which is we think about what happens here. Be thinking in your mind about how is this good? Why would we call this Good Friday? Why would we have a whole special service Friday night, which I hope you'll come to at 7 o'clock, to celebrate what we're reading about in John chapter 19 this morning. As you think about that, I've asked the question before, but I want to ask again, why do we display a cross? Why do we talk about the cross? Just to remind us, the cross is a form of execution. It's a cruel form of execution. The way we think about the cross and display the cross would make about as much sense to the world as if someone walked into your office and they looked at your desk and went, wow, that is a beautiful replica of the electric chair. I know I've shared it before, but I think it's fitting as we come up to Good Friday. It makes about as much sense that someone walked into your house like, wow, I love that painting of the gas chamber above your sofa. It is so beautiful and breathtaking. Or someone walking out to you being like, that is a gorgeous necklace you've got. I've never seen your lethal injection necklace before. I love that needle hanging on right. That's about, what it, about as much sense as the way people typically think about the cross. The cross is a form of execution that is cruel. Why do we celebrate it? Why do we display it? And I think sometimes the familiarity of the cross causes us to miss what it really is about. But if we think about what the cross is really about, our minds typically go in one of about three directions. A lot of times with the cross, we equate it with love. Look how much Jesus loved you. And friends, that's true. There's scripture that tells us that God so loved the world. And we see that the cross does remind us of love. But I think there's more than just that. Sometimes we think of the cross, and if we do get beyond the familiarity of it being a form of execution, we think of it as an example. Look at how Christ sacrificed it. I need to sacrifice as well. And Scripture tells us to consider those things as well. I think sometimes as evangelicals, as we get to Good Friday, our focus is on the suffering of Christ, and on the agonies of the cross, and that's true as well. And there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are all truths that we find in Scripture. But did you realize if we read the accounts of the crucifixion from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Not one of them mentions any of those things. Not one of them focuses on the love of Christ on the cross. None of them focuses on even his suffering. None of them focus on it being an example. None of them have for us any application. None of us have any emotionalism. It's all just very matter-of-fact, matter-of-fact. He was crucified. He was crucified. He was crucified. And they tell us a few details of he said this, and he was crucified. Or this happened, and he was crucified. You know, if I were writing a gospel of Jesus' life, it'd be so easy at the point of the cross to get into a lot of emotionalism here. Be like, look at what he endured, his, his pain, the way his back was lashed open, to start crying, trying to pull at the heartstrings of people to create a response. But not one of the gospel writers do that. They're all so matter-of-fact about it. And I encourage you this week to reread Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of the crucifixion as we prepare for Good Friday. What are they trying to show us instead? Instead of all those things that we typically are drawn to, 
I think it, particularly in John, but all of them, showing us one main thing here, and it's simply this. The cross shows that Jesus is the sovereign king who willingly died to accomplish our salvation. The cross shows that Jesus is the sovereign king who willingly died to accomplish our salvation. Now, this sounds a lot like the main point last week, and it should, because this is just part two of the same story, right? This is John still recording for us what's happening in the life of Jesus, and he's trying to get this into our minds of this is what's really going on. All these things are happening to show that Jesus is in full control. As we read our account from John 19 this morning, I want you to be listening for how John speaks of kingship, how he shows us that Jesus is in control. These things aren't just happening to Jesus, but Jesus is the sovereign one, the powerful one, the one who is mastering all that is happening. Let's look for how Jesus is the king and what he's accomplishing here. So in John chapter 19, let's start reading verse 12. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God? John chapter 19, verse 12, and we will go to the end of the chapter, and I'll try not to talk too fast as we cover that much ground this morning. John chapter 19, verse 12, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus... And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, or he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and the other two had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, And once there came out blood and water, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. 
After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe with about, about 75 pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Would you pray with me? Father God, I do thank you that you've recorded for us, you've shown us what happened on that Friday morning that we call Good Friday. And I pray today, God, as we come to a text that we've read throughout much of our lives, for many of us, I pray you give us fresh eyes to see it this day and help us understand what you want us to know from this text. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So there's lots we could talk about in this text, but the one thing I want us to see this morning is that the cross shows that Jesus is the sovereign king who willingly died to accomplish our salvation. I'm going to start with the idea that Jesus is the sovereign king. We have already saw this last week in the rest and trial of Jesus. John carries that on here. Where do we see that Jesus is the sovereign king? Well, I think there's four places in this text that shows us very specific details that John records for us that shows that Jesus is in full control. In fact, John's going to highlight four different times in this text we read this morning fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Things from the Word of God that was written down hundreds and hundreds of years before this happened are taking place. And John is building a case for us by showing us the fulfillment of prophecies to show us that everything is happening exactly as God ordained. Whereas if you look at John's account here, there is nothing that is repeated with the emphasis by the fulfillment of prophecy. There's nothing else he says four times in this text except for the fulfillment of prophecies. That should arrest our attention to what is most important in John's mind here as he's recording these four. So let's look at the first one. Go back to verses 23 and 24 here, chapter 19. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. I'll just pause right there. Why in the world is John taking time to tell us about Jesus' clothes? You ever start to think about that? There's seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. John only tells us three of them. John omits, skips four of the things Jesus says on the cross. John doesn't tell us anything about the curtain being torn. He doesn't get into all these details that we get in other Gospels. Instead, he spends like three or four verses here talking about garments. What in the world is John up to? Why would he take something that, to me, would seem so insignificant and give such focus to it on this, describing the crucifixion of Christ. Well, it's because of what happens in the latter part of verse 24. Look back at it. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. What is John doing here? He's quoting for us Psalm 22, verse 18. If you'll put that one up on the screen for us, Brad. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Friends, this was written by King David. It was a prophecy ten centuries before Jesus came. And I want you to realize in this, John is recording what seems like an insignificant detail to many about the clothing to show us that what's happening with Jesus, and not just with Jesus, what's happening at the foot of the cross with the soldiers is the very predetermined exact plan of God that God had established thousands of years before that. Go back to verse 24 here in John 19 and notice this word, so here. Don't miss this one word. So they said to one another... Let us not tear it, but cast lots. So notice the flow of thought in this. 
The soldiers had crucified Jesus. They're taking his clothing, verse 24. So they say to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, now they quote Psalm 22 here, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Therefore, because this is what God had determined, because this is what had been prophesied 10 centuries before, because that these soldiers did so. They had no idea they were filling prophecy, but God is so in control of the details of the crucifixion that even what happens to Jesus' clothes among the soldiers is what God had determined ahead of time would happen. But that's not all. Look at verses 28 and 29. Another thing that John brings out, the second prophecy that he shows fulfilled. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, that phrase we see John repeating, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Again, what's referenced here was also written 10 centuries before it happened. This is also Psalm chapter 22 verse 15, which says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. That's a word you use every day, right? It means a broken pot. Uh, it's like, my strength is dried up like a broken pot, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This also is a reference back to Psalm 69, verse 21, which tells us, they gave me poison for food. That's referenced in Matthew's gospel. And for the, my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So don't miss the significance of this again. What is John doing? John is masterfully building a case for us here. That what God had planned before time, God spoke to us and told us through the mouth of King David 10 centuries before, this is going to happen. They're going to divide his clothes. He's going to be thirsty on the cross. He's going to have sour, he's going to get poison for food. He's going to get sour wine to drink. And all these details John are recording is not just because it's interesting history for you and I. And so let us see that Jesus is a sovereign king and everything is happening exactly as he has ordained it would happen. But that's not all. There's more. He gives us a third fulfillment of prophecy to show us that Jesus is the king. Look at verses 31 and 32 here. Since it was the day of preparation, so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken that they might be taken away. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. So what is the request here from the Jews? They didn't want the bodies on the cross until Friday night. It would defile their Sabbath. They didn't want it there. And so they go to Pilate and say, hey, basically, can you speed up the death? And just to remind us, how does a person die on the cross? They're hanging there exposed in the sun. They're dehydrated. But ultimately, the way a person dies on the cross is asphyxiation. They cannot breathe. The only way to breathe when you're hanging on a cross is to push up so your diaphragm can move to get air in your lungs. And eventually, the person gets so weak They can't push up anymore, hence the nail through the feet to make it even more painful. They get to where they can't push up anymore. They can't breathe. They eventually suffocate hanging on the cross there. So if you need to speed up, what do you do? You go break their legs. Because if your legs are broken, you can't push up and you suffocate hanging there on the elements on the cross. That's what the Jews are asking Pilate to do. And that's what Pilate orders the soldiers to do. We don't see his order to it, but apparently that happens. Again, verse 32, a lot happens in the word so here. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. So the soldiers are following the governor's commands at the request of the Jews to break the legs. But the soldiers don't faithfully follow that command when it comes to Jesus. They've been ordered to break the legs of the three prisoners, but they disobey that order when it comes to Jesus. Verse 33 here. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Friends, we don't need to pass over this. Why would a Roman soldier disobey the command from the governor? They were instructed, they were commanded to break the legs of all the prisoners. They do it for two or three. Why not for Jesus? Well, sure, he's already dead. 
we get that. Remember, these are the same soldiers probably who have been spitting at him and mocking him. They're not here to take care of him. For them, a chance to break his legs is a chance to further mutilate his body like they've already done. It's a chance to further shame him. But they don't do it. Why why do these soldiers who are shaming Jesus disobey a command to further shame him and to further injure him here? Well, verse 36. For these things took place that, so that, here's the reason, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that one of his bones will be broken. The soldiers do not do what they would naturally do because God had ordained that would not happen. That had been foretold also in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. And that one shows us that he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And all these things, John is building us a case that every detail from the not the broken bones of the leg to what's happening with the clothing, to what Jesus is saying from the cross of his thirst is all part of God's ordained plan that had been prophesied about it a thousand years before. But there's one more detail he records related to Old Testament prophecy, and that's what the soldiers do that they were not commanded to do. Look back in verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side, Jesus' side, with a spear, and then once there came out blood and water. Why would they do this? Verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Where was that one foretold? That was in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, written 500 years before Jesus came. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And these four details, the only thing that John repeats four times, the scriptures were filled, the scriptures said, he's showing us over and over, he's building a case for us that Jesus is the sovereign king. All, everything is happening exactly as he ordained. These are not random events. This is not God in the hands of sinners who are controlling what's happening to Jesus. This is what God had already established and ordained would happen, this freely happening. I love how Peter describes it for us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he's talking to the masses and confronting the Jews of what they did. He says there, this Jesus delivered up according to what you want to do to him? No, what does it say? It delivered according to the, what, what's the next word? The, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He doesn't let them off. They killed Jesus. The Jews sent Jesus to the cross. But this was the definite plan. There is no plan B. There's no chance this God's not up in heaven going, man, I really hope this works for the sake of humanity. This is God's sovereign plan to the details of the clothing, to the details of the broken bones, to the details of the spear in the side, to the detail of the thirst. All these tiny details that John is recording is for the big picture, letting us see this is the definite plan, the foreknowledge of God. And what is this plan for? What is he doing all this for? Why is he bringing all these details together for? To accomplish salvation for his people. The cross shows us that Jesus is the sovereign king, but he's willingly dying to accomplish our salvation. Where do we see in this text the description, the historical narrative of the crucifixion? Where do we see that Jesus is accomplishing our salvation? Two places here, and the first one's important, and it's an image that's easy for us to miss. Go back to verse 33 in chapter 19 here. I just looked at this in terms of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but it has a lot more to it. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Okay, now you may be thinking, how in the world does this have anything to do with the fact that Jesus is accomplishing our salvation. Yes, this is a prophecy from Psalm 34, but there's a lot more to this than just the fulfillment of prophecy. Think back for a minute to the Passover. The Passover was the most holy of celebrations to the Jewish people. In fact, it's what they're celebrating that weekend when all this is taking place. The Passover was a time after the Jews had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God, through signs and wonders, shows himself strong and begins to deliver his people from slavery. The final plague that gets the people out of slavery is when 
the people were commanded to kill an innocent lamb, to put the blood on the doorpost of their house, and all who believed and who obeyed and put blood on their doorpost, that night when the angel of death passed over, it would pass over and there would be no death in their house. But anyone who did not obey and did not put the blood covering over the door, they would have a firstborn who would die. And that night in Egypt, those who did not believe, most of the Egyptians, there was wailing and mourning because so many died. But all who had believed and obeyed and put the blood over their doorpost from the innocent lamb, they were spared. And God used that to cause them to be released from their captivity. And the people of Israel, after 400 years of slavery, escape on that. And God tells them, you're to remember my deliverance for you. You're to remember this. And at the Passover celebration every year, they were to kill an innocent lamb. And they were to remember what had happened. But it wasn't just any lamb that they could kill. Look in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. This is part of the instructions for what they were to do in the Passover celebration. It, the Passover lamb, shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. In the Passover, it was super important that they follow exactly. They remember that the lambs were sacrificed so they could go free. But these lambs were to have no bones broken. What is going on here with Jesus on the cross and no bones broken? It is an image that should be so clear to the Jewish people. Remember, this weekend they're celebrating Passover. This weekend they are shedding the blood. All throughout Jerusalem there's blood running in the streets because they're killing innocent lambs, remembering how God had delivered them. All the while they're killing the Son of God who's hanging on the cross. And they're being so careful not to break any bones of these lambs so they can faithfully follow the religious ritual of the Passover all the while Jesus is hanging on the cross as the final sacrificial lamb, the final Passover lamb with no bones being broken because he is taking the place. Friends, that's why we don't do sacrifices. It's not that we write those off and go, oh, that Old Testament law, that's just Old Testament, we don't do that. Christ has fulfilled it. That's why we don't come in here and kill a lamb and be careful not to break bones and have blood flowing through the front of gateway. Because Christ is the final Passover lamb. Christ is the one who has borne the sacrifice for us when he hung on the cross. And so with him not having his bones broken, it was a sign, it was a reminder that he himself is the final Passover lamb, the one who is taking away not just physical slavery, but here he's taking away the spiritual slavery to sin that has enslaved people throughout all of human history. And because he's doing that, because he is that perfect Passover lamb on this very Passover weekend, look at what he's able to say in verse number 30 here. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What does he say when it is finished? It's a Greek word, finished. It gets translated finished or accomplished as teleo. And it's a word that gets used by different ways by different people. Particularly this word that Jesus says, It is accomplished, it is finished, is a word that was used by servants. When they go back to their master and say, I've done everything you've sent me to do. When I've perfectly done the mission you sent me on, the task you sent me on, it is teleo, it is finished, it is accomplished for you, master. And that's what Christ has done. He is on the cross. He's done exactly what the Father has sent him to do. But it's also beautiful because it's a word that's used by the priest. When the priests were examining a lamb to make sure it was a proper sacrifice, they found a lamb that was flawless, with no broken bones. They say, teleo, it is a perfect sacrifice. The same word is used by the priest there. And that's what Christ is. He's hanging on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for us. It's a word that is finished, which was used by artists at the time. When an artist completed their masterpiece, it was beautiful and it's finished, the artist would say, Teleo, it is accomplished. My masterpiece is done. And that's what's happening. The, all the tapestry of history is coming to this point of Christ on the cross showing the fullness of God's attributes on that. But one more, this word Teleo in the Greek that we translate, it is finished, was a word that was used by merchants. Once a debt was paid... The merchant would say, Teleo, it's paid in full. The debt has been written off. And there on the cross, Jesus paid the debt for you and for I. That he's forgiven us of our sins. The sin debt we have is paid 
and full. It is finished. He's completed the work. He's the perfect, flawless sacrifice. The work is complete. It's beautiful. And the debt is paid in full. And one more thing on this word for it is finished. It's a tense in the Greek that means it is finished. It stands finished and it will always be finished. It's a word that means continuous results. There's no undoing what has been happened here. And what is finished? What is accomplished here? Everything Jesus came to do. Securing your salvation and my salvation. Revealing to us the nature of God. Living the perfect life we could not live. Dying as the perfect sacrifice in our, in our place. Accomplishing salvation for all who will believe. What did he do? I love how Paul puts it in Colossians. As he writes to people at Colossae in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Well, that's wonderful. He's forgiven us. How? By canceling the record of debt, by teleo, it is finished, by canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How is our debt forgiven, the debt you and I deserve, because we have sinned against God, we've offended God? How is it set aside? God is so holy, he can't brush it off, he can't ignore it, but he's paid for himself on the cross. And so, friends, the cross shows us that Jesus is the sovereign king who died to accomplish our Salvation And friends, let me remind us he did so willingly. No coercion. This is the plan that he had established before time began. Look at verse 30 here one more time. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. It is completed. It is accomplished. And he bowed his head and he gave up. He freely gave up his spirit. There's a voluntariness to this. No one is taking it from him. This is all what he has chosen to do. He is sovereign over the clothes at the foot of the grave. He is sovereign over whether his legs will be broken. He's sovereign over whether his side will be pierced. He's sovereign over all these details. And the time has come. He has paid the debt. He has done exactly what he came to do. And so he can cry out, it is finished. At that point, he himself voluntarily gives up his spirit and he dies. That's what John's already told us in John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life. Notice the voluntariness of it. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Then in verse 18, no one takes it from me. Just realize that. In the midst of all that's happening in the crucifixion, Jesus is not some victim up there who is at the hands of sinful people and cannot control what's happening. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to, to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The cross shows us that Jesus is the sovereign king who willingly died to accomplish our salvation. And because he's sovereign over these things, because he's accomplishing our salvation, we look at this day that would be so tragic, and we call it good, Good Friday. That's why when we see a cross necklace, is not the same as a lethal injection necklace. Because it's not just an instrument of torture, not just an instrument of punishment, it's an instrument of it is finished. God has accomplished what he had intended to do for you and for me. That's why because of the cross, it's not just a painting of a gas chamber and something that's cruel in our house. It's a symbol of victory and joy because the cross shows us that Christ has accomplished what he had determined before time even began to accomplish. That's to rescue you and me through taking on the debt that we have, our sin debt, and paying for it. He's accomplishing, he's finishing it. That's what we can call it good. But friends, as we've seen over and over in the Gospel of John, these are not just nice stories from history. They are history. They are true. This is historical. We know this is to be all true. It's not just a nice story. We can be like, well, that's great. Jesus died. Woohoo, go Jesus. There's, this demands a response from you and from me also. We can't look at this and remain neutral. We can't look at Christ being the sovereign king on the cross. He's orchestrating all these minuscule details about the day and remain unmoved. Remember last week, we said the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. 
And when we come face to face with, face to face with what Christ did on the cross, it's going to either soften us because we begin to see the greatness of our sin and see the glory of God and see Christ crying out as accomplished. We know he's rescuing us from our own sin and we fall in worship or that same message can also harden us as we continue to reject and shake our fist at God. That happens here in our text today. You see some people who are hardened. Look back at verse 15. The Jewish leaders, they know what they're calling out for here. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. These people who, are ple- who supposedly are being so religious to make sure they're following God as their king are now shaking their fist at God and saying, we have no king. Caesar's our only king. They, with their own mouth, are now confessing basically their rejection of God to follow what they want to see happen. And they cry out, crucify Jesus. They've seen the very same thing the disciples have seen and their hearts are so hard to the sovereign king who's hanging right there before them. But not everyone is like that. There are some who are softening. Look at verses 38 to 40. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Don't miss this, friends. Joseph and Nicodemus, who are here, were both members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was that group of 71 who had just found Jesus guilty and sent him to die. You now have two members who've seen the cross, who've seen Christ doing this, and God has softened their hearts in the midst of this. These members of Sanhedrin, these men of wealth and influence and prestige, I mean, obviously they have some influence. How else could they get Pilate to release the body to them? But these men have such influence religiously and culturally, these men who are part of the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court here, who have previously been so secretive coming at night to see Jesus, are now publicly identifying with Christ here. The cross changed them. So friends, with that in view, I want to ask you, is the cross changing you? This is not just a historical story for us to move on with our lives with. This is a story of what actually happened because Jesus is a sovereign king and he went to the cross secure the salvation of all who will believe. So friends, what is the cross to you? Is it a picture in your house? Is it a decoration on the wall or on your desk? Is it a piece of jewelry that you wear? Or is the cross for you the symbol that melts your heart because you see the greatness of Christ? Because you realize your sin debt and you realize that there on that cross, on that place of torture, Christ called out, it is finished to secure your salvation. Is the cross something that just gives you warm fuzzies? Is it something that you just celebrate on Good Friday? Or is the cross good to you? Because it reminds you that Jesus is the sovereign king. Though he'd been just to condemn you, loved you, died in your place, and cried out, it is finished. So you can now know him. And if the cross means that to you, friends, are we living like we mean that? Are we living not just as ones who think about the cross on Good Friday, Are we people who have so seen the cross and seen the greatness of Christ and seen our sin debt and have fallen on our face in worship to where we now follow him and serve him each and every day? Would you pray with me? Father, I do pray as we approach this Easter season, God, that you would give us grace upon grace to not just see the symbols and think about the things we've heard over and over again, but God, to have fresh eyes to really ponder these. 
God, I pray particularly for myself and these precious brothers and sisters this week as we approach Good Friday and the whole Easter season, God, that you would remind us of how awesome you are. God, that you are the sovereign reigning king, that you are on your throne, that things do not happen by chance, but you are orchestrating things for your purposes. Just as you did with Christ on the cross and all of these little details, show us how sovereign you are, how reigning you are, how big you are. God, I pray this week you would show us and remind us each and every day that you are on your throne. I know there's many in this room who are going through trials and difficulties and struggles in life, and I pray this week they would remember, one, your love for them, and remember, two, that they're forgiven in Christ because of what Christ has done. But God, I pray they would also remember that you are on your throne, and they would find that as an anchor and a hope this week. And God, for all of us this week, God, would you be reminding us of how awful our sin is, that how glorious grace is, how glorious and joyful forgiveness is. Not because you wipe it away, not because you turn a blind eye to it, but God, in your supreme holiness, you had to deal with sin. And you dealt with it by becoming a man, by living a perfect life, fulfilling the law we couldn't fulfill, by going to that cruel Roman cross to be an innocent sacrifice with no broken bones as the final Passover lamb that you might rescue us and redeem us. And God, I pray for those of us who are your children that we would live this week like a redeemed people who remember the cross and how it's changed us. And Father, if there's anyone in this room who's never trusted you, God, I pray this week would be a week as they approach these things that you would just capture their attention with the thoughts of their sin on Christ on the cross and they would realize their need for you and they would fall on their face in repentance this week before it's too late. God, I pray for all of us that we would worship you in response who you are and all that you've done. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song?